0: God, thank you for this morning. Uh, so grateful to uh, arise and know that you didn't sleep that you never slumber asleep that you are uh, intimately acquainted with whatever it is that um, stands in the way of us uh, fully uh, living for you and that uh, tempts us to sin. And um, Lord, I'm grateful that your mercies are needed today and every day, and uh, that we can stand firm in your mercy, knowing that by faith we are your children. And God, I pray this morning that you would um, enliven our hearts with your word, that you would uh, receive glory from the proclamation of your word, and that you would be glorified by the posture of our hearts in receiving the word. And God, I pray that that we would be changed and we'd be more in awe of the sacrifice, the eternal sacrifice for our sins. We love you. We thank you that you love us. And we pray all this in the powerful name of Jesus and God's people said, amen. As we were singing that last song, I just felt compelled to read uh, Psalm chapter 1. And just to be reminded that that God's word is um, it's nourishment for us. It's, it's, it's food. It's, we can't survive without it. And um, I don't know that we would necessarily, if we were doing topical sermons, if we would pick a passage like today, particularly the first section, uh, because it's a, it's a hard section of Scripture. Um, but it was written for, uh, for first-century Christians, and it was written for us today. So I want to encourage you that God has something for each of us here today no matter where you're at in your journey with Jesus. The psalmist says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers." So I pray that we would prosper this morning by engaging um, in His Word. Um, So we are in uh, chapter 10, verses 26 through 39, and um, this section of Scripture contrasts one who deliberately sins with one who deliberately does the will of God. And the one who deliberately sins, goes on deliberately sinning, will inherit judgment or wrath, and the one who goes on deliberately doing the will of God, not perfectly, but deliberately will receive a great and promised reward. The motivation to persevere in doing the will of God is understanding that we possess a better and lasting hope than anything that we can imagine on this earth, that we have a better and lasting hope. Um, we're just saying it, that Jesus is better than than anything we can imagine. The author's audience is the church. It's professing believers. And in every um, uh, uh, local expression of the greater church, there are um, some who are not regenerate. So he's speaking to professing Christians, knowing that some are have been born again and others are what, what we would call spurious Christians, ones who uh, maybe um, look like Christians on the outside. They uh, attend Sunday gathering, uh, but they have not yet been regenerate. So that's the audience. The theme that goes through this entire book is, uh, is the author's desire to, for, for the audience to persevere in confident faith that Jesus is better. That's the battle for the Christian, is it not? That there are so many things in this world that compete. Good things. Like idols aren't bad things. That good things end up being little g gods. Families, our spouse, our jobs, our position. Those are all good things, but they can compete. They can become idols. So the author wants to remind us over and over again that Jesus is enough, that possessing faith in Jesus and possessing the promises of the eternal God has a sure reward attached to it that is better than anything that we could possess here and now. So my prayers this morning is that you would find encouragement this morning. Whatever you're experiencing, whether it's your own sin or the sins of the world, to persevere faithfully and joyfully in the faith. As I mentioned, this original audience, they were, they were professing Christians. They were, they, were, they were mostly a Jewish audience. They had converted from Judaism to Christianity. And as a result of their conversion, they experienced reproach of all kinds. And they experienced massive affliction. Because of their faith in Jesus Christ. There were some in the church whose faith was wavering and they were on the brink of throwing away the confidence they once had in the promises of God. They were growing weary of the trials of life. They were growing weary of doing the will of God and it was just easier to do their own will. They might have said, if life is going to be this hard, why not pursue my will? If doing God's will is so hard and I'm going to suffer anyways by doing God's will, why, why do God's will? Why not pursue my own happiness? One becomes a Christian not by doing God's will, but by God's grace through faith in the shed blood of Jesus for the remission of our sins. But the Christian life is proved by the fruit that the life is, that the life produces. You see, one cannot have confidence that he or she is a believer just because you might have prayed a prayer at age 6, age 20, or age 35. Yes, we're saved by grace through faith, but what proves our faith is fruit, is increasing fruit. In today's passage, the author will contrast, again, the one who goes on deliberately sinning, with the one who goes on deliberately doing the will of God. It's not about perfection, but direction. There are some who start the race out well, but then the trials of life and the lure of riches prove that they were not the Lord's in the first place. Even though today in the United States we don't suffer persecution for our faith, you might think we do, but we don't. But it's coming. It's nothing like it was in first century where you would be cast out from society, um, put in jail, or killed. The author reminds us that we can persevere and endure hardship joyfully only when we believe rightly that we have a better possession. Whatever trial or temptation you're enduring, Jesus is better. So what's the pathway towards a, to joyful and, uh, and faithful perseverance in the faith? It's, it's a rightly placed hope. It's a, hope. it's a hope placed in better things to come. Not a fragile hope in better possessions here and now, but a sure hope in a better and lasting possession. I've organized this passage today in three different sections. First is 26 through 31, which is a warning to those who are persistently and willfully sinning. Second, verses 35 through, uh, 32 through 35, that we can have confidence in a better possession and a greater reward. And lastly, verses 35 to 39, that we can endure by faith doing the will of God. In fact, we are to endure by faith doing the will of God. So verses 26-31, a warning to those who are persistently and willfully sinning. The, The author has a stark warning for professing Christians. This is for professing Christians. It's the same truth for those who don't profess Christ, but this is specifically for those who profess Christ. And he gives a warning to those professing Christians of the implications of willfully Living a life in opposition to the will of God. There are times when biblical writers motivate us with the grace and love of God, and there's other times like this where biblical writers remind us, their audience, of the wrath or judgment of God. And it's honest, and it's loving, and it's wise to tell people the truth about the wrath of God. Because without understanding the holiness and the justice and the wrath and judgment of God, we can never understand salvation and the grace of God. The Bible is clear about the wrath of God so that its readers don't miss the grace of God. It's unloving actually in the church little, about little C church, big C church to see a professing brother or sister in Christ living in, profe- in in persistent sin and to ignore their sin. That's why one of our distinctives or convictions here is church discipline. It's to it's it's because we want, to, we want the best for one another, and we want to see Christ's church purified. In Hebrews ten twenty four through 25 the, the last section of the passage we looked at last week, the author of Hebrews wrote this. He says, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, now all the more as you see the day drawn near. So what he was ta- what he was referring to there is that there are some Christians in the church that are wavering, that that are that are on a slippery slope, that they are deliberately sinning, and he and he and, and he encourages the rest of the church to come alongside them, to stir them up to love and good works. To encourage them not to neglect meeting together as is their habit. Now he explains in verses 26-27, through he explains the slippery slope of not loving or doing good works and neglecting meeting together. He says, for if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. So, so here you have in verse 27 a picture of God's wrath. Good morning. His wrath is judgment. It's a legal act of an eternal judge. It says that His wrath is the fury of fire. Literally a fiery passion. God the judge is not just a little bit angry about sin, but he has a passionate fury over sin. And lastly, the passage says, the fire will consume his adversaries. It will swallow up the sinner in the flames of legal and passionate judgment. Consume means swallow up into suffering forever. Justice will be done, and holy anger will be satisfied. That's the beginning of our text today. If in fact God's wrath will consume his enemies, we have to ask the question, what makes someone his enemy? And it says it in the passage. Someone is his enemy when there is no longer when there no longer remains a sacrifice for their sin. God is a holy and just God. He cannot tolerate sin by, his nature of, by the nature of His perfection. All sin must be punished. Romans 6.23 tells us that, that the wages of sin is what? Death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. God sent his only son into the world to live and to die as a satisfactory sacrifice to God for the sins of all who trust in his finished work on the cross. That all sin needs to be paid for. It either to be paid for by his wrath on judgment day or all who don't believe will be consumed by his fiery judgment or it was paid on the cross. He poured out his wrath on his only son so that all who believe will not perish but have eternal life. This sacrifice, this beautiful, wondrous, glorious sacrifice covers all past, present, and future sin for all who trust in it. It cleanses those who believe. From the guilt and penalty of sin, in doing so, one is washed by the blood of Christ and is set apart and is a new creation and has been called out of darkness and brought into the light of Jesus Christ. Then the author of Jesus, the author of Hebrews, excuse me, is writing to those who have received the knowledge of the truth and yet are still adversaries or enemies of God. How can it be that someone receives the truth? yet they still remain enemies. That's what the text says. We can't just walk over it. First, who are those who've received the knowledge of truth? If you go back, if you listen to the sermon, I think February 6th, when I taught through chapter 6, verses 4 through 5, it tells us who these spurious Christians are. A spurious Christian is one who looks like a whitewashed tomb. And only the Lord knows that they, they have all, all the outward appearance of a Christian, but they're unregenerate. And only God knows. Here's what chapter 6, 4-5 through five tells us about these type of professing Christians. It says, verse 4, it says that they are those who have been once enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift who have shared in the holy spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of god and the powers of the age to come they've been they have been enlightened they are the ones who have been exposed to god's saving light through the hearing of the gospel that they've heard it and they've received it in some way since they've tasted the heavenly gift it's those who saw that jesus was good and they believed that he could save them from their sin. And they shared in the Holy Spirit. They might have witnessed and been and have been beneficiaries of the fruit of the Spirit working in others. They may have had some initial heart change that mirrored the fruit of the Spirit of their own life. And then it says that they tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come. They saw the goodness of His Word and they wanted all that was promised. They wanted that. Who wouldn't want heaven? Who wants hell? So how can he write that there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins but in fact a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume adversaries who are professing Christians? It's because these spurious Christians go, they deliberately sin. They go on deliberately sinning the passage tells us. So what does it mean to sin deliberately? We have to answer that question. To sin deliberately translates the Greek word hekosiosi. This is the word that is used in 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 2 where Peter encourages the elders to shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight not under compulsion but willingly or diligently. Same word. It's the same word that translates to deliberately in Hebrews 10 26. Peter is telling the pastors to not shepherd the flock just because it's their job or calling or they're getting paid for it. Do it with eager and intentional desire. So sin is deliberate when there is an eager and intentional desire to pursue your will, not the Lord's will, at any cost. Let me say it another way. We sin deliberately when our desire for sin is greater than our desire to deliberately do the will of God. Every Christian sins deliberately. Regenerate Christians at times sin deliberately. I know there are times when I just know, like, ah, I shouldn't say this. I shouldn't do this. I need to hold my tongue. And next thing I know, out-of-body experience, like the words are coming out of my mouth. And it kind of feels good. Like we sin deliberately. So the author, knowing that we're going to sin deliberately time, brings further clarity to what he means here. And notice carefully the phrase, go on sinning deliberately. Go on. It's an eager willingness to go on sinning deliberately. What destroys a soul and will ultimately prove one to be unregenerate is continual, willful sinning without conviction, confession, or repentance. Jesus describes these spurious Christians in the parable of the sower, Mark chapter 4, Jesus says, And these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they heard the word, they immediately received it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. This while could be two days, it could be 20 years. They endure for a while, and then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the Word, they immediately fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the Word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things enter in and choke the Word, and it proves unfruitful. But who are the true Christians? But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit, 30 fold and 60 fold and 100 fold. Salvation is all of grace, make no mistake. There's nothing we can add to it, but salvation has a cost. Your trial may not end as a result of you being a Christian. In fact, I would submit to you that Christians historically, And Christians globally have way more trials than those who are pagan. The first two soils represent people who are good with Christianity. I'm good. I don't want to go to hell as long as there's no cost. As long as my life is smooth. As long as I can pursue my will at any cost. these first two soils will persevere persevere as long as the wind is at their back and they can have evidence of their best life today. A genuine faith brings about a genuine repentance and a change of direction in one's life and a changed life that bears fruit. We've talked about this over and over again in this fruit. There's seasons where the fruit is raisins. There might be short seasons where there's like no fruit on the tree. But as you look at the tree it's healthy. And if the tree's going to live, it's going to eventually bear fruit. The Christian life is not about perfection because we are imperfect. But it's very much about direction. If you can go on deliberately sinning without any conviction of sin and a lack of desire to confess and repent, there's no evidence of fruit. And there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins for you. In the verses 28 through 29, the author reinforces his argument by comparing the lesser judgment of the Old Covenant to the greater judgment of the New Covenant. Under the Old Covenant, if anyone was caught in transgression the Lord by two or three witnesses, they were took outside the city and they were stoned. So if man caught you, there was no restoration. You would just be simply taken outside the walls and stoned. And the author's point here in verse 28 and 29, if death was required for someone who has done evil in the sight of the Lord by serving and worshiping other gods under the old covenant, how much worse will the punishment be for those who receive the knowledge of the truth of salvation through the shed blood of the Son of God and then trampled underfoot the Son of God and profaned the blood of the new covenant by going on and sinning deliberately, while professing to be a Christian. The judgment of God upon professing Christians who continue in deliberate sin is described as a punishment that is worse than death because it goes way beyond this death. You may not die at the hands of men for ongoing deliberate sin, but unless there is repentance and a spirit-empowered desire to do the will of God, payment for sin will be demanded. The Lord is the sole judge of the human heart. And he's the sole judge of the destiny of every human soul. You may not get caught by human witnesses, but nothing escapes our all-knowing judge. And he finishes this section up in verses 30-31 with a quote from um, Isaiah 20 and uh, Habakkuk chapter 2. He combines these. He says, For we know Him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge His people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Whatever your view of God is, the creator of the universe, and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, if your view of the triune God is does not include this. Your view of God is distorted. It's an unrealistic view. God is a God of vengeance. And to fall into his hands, uncovered by the blood of Jesus, is a terrifying thing. When Jonathan Edwards preached his famous sermon about 300 years ago, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, his text came from Deuteronomy, but the words from his text came from here. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Verses 32-35, he's going to now talk about the confidence, the confidence that true believers have in a better, possess, better pos, possession and a greater reward. So after the author reminds him of judgment for those who willfully and habitually sin, he encourages Christians to have confidence in a better possession and a greater reward. In the first century Jewish-Roman culture, it wasn't easy to become a Christian and publicly identify with Jesus. After you professed faith in Christ, you would have uh, most assuredly been publicly shamed. And physically punished for your faith and for standing for others who follow Jesus. So he asked them, he asked them to recall the days when they first professed faith in Christ and as a result endured hard trials. And more importantly, he asked them to remember the joy that they had and the root of that joy in the midst of trials. Verse 32, but recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with suffering. Sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach, that's ridicule and slander and affliction, physical punishment, physical suffering, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. He says, recall days when you first understood the love of Christ, when you first, uh, and that your sins were forgiven. Remember when you were so in awe that there was a God who loved you and wanted to forgive you in spite of all that you've done. And remember that you were so in awe of his love that you willingly picked up your cross and said, I'll follow you. I'll do whatever you ask me to do. I'll go wherever you ask me to go. Everything was worth it. You were free from the power and penalty of sin, and you possessed a sure hope of an eternal inheritance where everything would be made new. Then it goes on in verse 34, first part of 34 four he says four and whenever we see this four he's explaining how these christians were partners with those treated with approach and affliction for you had compassion on those in prison if someone didn't visit those in prison in those days the people in prison probably would have died because the the the, the prison didn't provide food so this this compassion that they had on on these prisoners was a risky venture because they were visiting imprisoned Christians. And by visiting imprisoned Christians, you're identifying with them. And by visiting imprisoned Christians, it was risky, and you too could be thrown in jail. In verse 34b, And you joyfully, back in the day, remember, recall, in your suffering and trials, you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. This is craziness. This is radical. This is for you and me today in the midst of any trial. What he's saying is that you, when you recall back, you didn't simply accept what came your way because of destiny or fate, that you joyfully accepted the plundering, the entire confiscation of your home and all of its contents. You joyfully accepted it. James said something similar to a different Christian audience in James 1. He says, Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Count it or consider it all joy whenever you meet or encounter trials of various kinds. The author of Hebrews is talking about about trials that come as a result of our faith in Christ. We We don't have a lot of those. We have some of those, and it comes usually in the form of families that we don't have the same relationship with because of our, because of our um, relationship with Jesus. But even though the, the author of Hebrews is referring to trials that come directly as a result of being a Christ follower, the principle is the same in every trial. Current, past, and future trials. Big trials, small trials. Financial, relational, physical spiritual, emotional trials. He says, consider it all joy. Really? Can't I just wallow in it a little bit? Can't I just get even? How is it that these first century Christians were able to accept this plundering joyfully? Well, here's the answer. The answer is right here. And don't miss it. And remember it in your next, your next trial, because it is otherworldly. It is radical. 34C, since you accepted joyfully because you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. You can accept trials of any sort joyfully because whatever it is that you are losing as a result of this trial, you can have confidence that you possess a better possession. That you have a better possession and it has infinitely better worth and it will last forever. That, that's what it means, that it's an abiding possession. It lasts forever. Jesus spoke about the joy of being persecuted for being his followers in the same way. Luke chapter 6, blessed are you, happy are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil. Happy? On account of the Son of Man. He says, on this day when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil, he says, rejoice in that day. Not just to rejoice, leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. How can we have joy or leap for joy in the midst of trial of any kind? We can leap for joy because our reward is in heaven. That we are possessed by the one who possesses us. And he will never let go. And in this final section, he, he, he encourages us to endure. Endure whatever comes your way. Endure by faith and do the will of God. Therefore, verse 35, Therefore, do not throw away your confidence. You have a better possession. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence in this great possession. It's your great reward. For you have need of endurance or patience, so that when you have done the will of God, You've done the will of God, not the will of man. You, will, you may receive what is promised. If you want to have joy today, don't throw away your confidence in your great and sure and coming reward. What's the opposite of throwing something away? Cherish it. Love it. Embrace it. God will see His children all the way through the trials of life. You don't have to worry about that. Cling to His promise. Those who love God will be able to confidently endure and receive what is promised. James, once again, is helpful to us. James chapter 1, verse 12. Blessed or happy is the man or woman or child who remains steadfast who confidently endures under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Remain steadfast under trial and you will receive the crown of life or more literally, you'll receive the crown that is life. Those who have confident faith will endure joy, joyfully and those who endure will receive the final reward of fully possessing what they now possess in part. Paul says in First Corinthians 13, "For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then when we receive our word face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I've been fully known." Enduring is actually hard work. It's the work of being on our knees. It's the work of living in community. It's the work of looking back to the cross and being reminded that it is finished. It's hard work, but it brings joy when it's motivated by the confidence that we have in a better position. Here's the point. The point, Christian, is not that you need to have endurance and persevere to the end. You do. But the greater point is that if you are a Christian, by his strength and his power, you will persevere to the end. And you will receive the great reward. And that should motivate us to endure. Verse 37, 38, for yet a little while and the coming of the one will and the coming one will come and not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. We're going to have to wait for our reward. We've, we've, we, we have him. We, Paul says that we, we possess everything in Christ Jesus. But we will possess it one day in its fullness when we're face to face with him. When we get to feast in the house of Zion. When there's no more suffering, no more sin, and no more death. But we're going to have to wait for that reward. And while we're waiting, we will endure trials of many sorts. And waiting requires living by faith, not just keeping the faith. And the author in Hebrews says this in chapter 11, verse 1. He says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. The one who shrinks back, throws away their confidence in a great reward, and goes on deliberately sinning. And God has no pleasure in that person. But we, Christians, verse 39, are not of those who shrunk, shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith, and a faith that preserves our souls. The Christian life is one of deliberately doing the will of God and deliberately forsaking sin. It's not about perfection, but it's about direction. As somebody reminded me the other day, it's not just it's I, it's about a direction that is motivated by affection. It's not about direction, but it's not about perfection, but about direction. And what motivates us and compels us is the love of Christ. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you for this passage. God, thank you that for the believer who is convicted of sin and and um, and by the Spirit of God is convicted of sin and and uh, confesses it and repents and Lord, um, that we can have confidence in a great reward. We can have confidence that we will receive the crown that is life. We can have confidence that your promises are all true for us. And God, I pray that we would just cling with confidence to those promises, that we would walk by faith, and not by sight, that we would be a church that is in the race together, spurring one another on to love and good deeds, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. And God, I do pray that if there, are, I pray this morning for uh, spurious Christians that that are here today or that we may know, God, that um, we know that that nobody's lost, fully lost, until you return to judge the living and the dead. So God, I pray that you would bring a conviction of sin and a desire to trust in your finished work on the cross for those who have been just trying to earn their way in by doing the will of God. God, that's backwards, that we're saved by grace through faith and that a regenerate believer will have a growing desire to do your will by the power of your Spirit. So God, may that that be us uh, today and this week. We love you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.